Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta, Pangarang and Kaerna country. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is the 15th of August 2022. We always include a community service announcement, asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively, and isolate as much as possible, and as soon as you can, to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers. And he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist, or particle physicist. But right now, we're going to zoom across 14 time zones to dive deep into a day in the life of a wonderful radio astronomer at the iconic Green Bank Observatory in West Virginia, Dr. Emily Moravik. Hello, Emily. Hello there. Today, it's truly wonderful, and I'm very grateful to be speaking with Dr. Emily Moravik, who is a postdoctoral fellow at Green Bank Observatory. Emily is an AGN researcher who works on active galactic nuclei, radio galaxies, galaxy clusters, and radio interferometry. She's an active member in a number of radio AGN and cluster collaborations, and does wonderful outreach work supporting early career astronomers. Today, we'll be hearing about some of her beautiful research and powerful outreach. And thanks for speaking with us today, Emily. Well, thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm really looking forward to this. Fantastic. Okay. So just before we talk about your research programs, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Emily, and Tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place. Yes, of course. So I grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska, which is in the middle of the United States. It's in the Midwest, and it is a very beautiful prairie of the United States. And my parents always encouraged me to be involved in whatever I would like. And I early on showed a propensity for math and science, and they were very supportive of that. And early on, I uh, would be out on the driveway with my father, who had a small hunter's spotting scope, and we would look at the planets and at stars when I was young, and I really, really enjoyed that. And then in high school, I took many different science classes as I really enjoyed science and really fell in love with physics. And even though it was the most challenging class I had taken yet, I really loved a good challenge and I really loved understanding how the world works. 
And so I decided to do that in college. And during my university and college years, I found out that I could do astronomy as a career and decided to go ahead and combine my childhood love for the sky with my love of math and physics and science in general. So I ended up doing some research in college, and that's how I ended up being a professional astronomer. Fantastic. Okay. Look, we are going to talk about all that, but let's go back a little bit first, back to Lincoln, Nebraska. Could you tell us about your early ambitions and did those ambitions change? Oh, that's a great question. I just really loved understanding how the world works. I didn't know really about being a scientist full time. I didn't know about graduate school and such things. I just followed my dream and heart of wanting to know how the world works. And math and physics really spoke to me that way. And my parents were both medical doctors. And I knew I didn't want to do that, but I still really enjoyed science. And so I think for a while I wanted to be a veterinarian. I think that is a very popular (laughs) childhood ambition uh, to be a vet, but I ended up just through all of my coursework, really enjoying math and physics. And I just started looking for ways to continue doing that. So I think I sort of always was following that path, uh, except for the time when I wanted to be a vet for a little while. So, yeah. (laughs) Cool. Okay. Um, So after your successful school career, you started with your Bachelor of Arts in Physics in Minnesota. Then you traded hats and gloves for T-shirts and moved 1,500 miles south to the University of Florida where you did your Masters of Science in Astronomy. And then in just three years, you were awarded your PhD, also at the University of Florida, where you research radio galaxies in massive galaxy clusters at Redshift 1. Now, your first postdoc was at Czech Republic, where you worked at the Astronomical Institute of the Czech Academy of Sciences in Prague, where you were also an ELMA support scientist working with the Czech ARC or the ARC node. And now you're back in the States, up in West Virginia, where you're doing another postdoc fellowship, this time at the famous 100-metre Green Bank Observatory, the world's largest fully steerable radio telescope. And it's quite an amazing research and travel trajectory you've got there, Emily. And could we just touch on a couple of features for our listeners first? Could you tell us a little about your time in Prague? I noticed your surname has Czech origins, and I was wondering if you had family connections there. And my view is that Prague is a truly wonderful, historic and modern city, as long as you don't try and walk over the Charles Bridge in tourist season. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) Yeah, a very different place compared with Florida, especially in the language, the culture and the climate. Did you have an enjoyable time in Prague, Emily? Tell us about it. Yeah, it's interesting seeing it all 
that trajectory that I have had all laid out, I guess it is quite a bit of traveling all over. I have enjoyed each bit of it. But uh, to your questions about my time in Prague, so yes, my name is Czech. So it's pronounced Moravets in Czech, but as the Czech people moved to the United States, a lot of them actually moved to Nebraska and Iowa because there was a lot of cheap farmland there. And so I've met a few other Moraviks. It's interesting, you can say my name in the United States either as Moravik, Moravik, Moravik. There are several different ways. So my family says it Moravik. So as Americans, it's very common to ask one another, you know, what, what is your heritage? Because usually people are a big melting pot of a lot of different parts of the world. But my dad's side of the family actually is still 100% Czech, and they moved here in, I believe it was the 1850s. And there were just uh, a lot of Czech people in that area, and you didn't go very far to start new families and such. So it just stayed 100% Czech, the bloodline. So my dad's still 100% Czech, and I'm 50% Czech. So yeah, that side of the family is very Czech. We have lost touch with most of the family there. When I spent time there, I didn't actually get to see any family just because it had been quite a while since parts of my family had been to the Czech Republic and uh, to keep up on connections there. We have information about our family tree that we keep, but no close relatives I have there. So we do have family connections there. And my grandmother gave me the opportunity to learn Czech when I was young. And unfortunately, as a nine-year-old, I did not want to do that as I was already learning French and Spanish in various ways. So I didn't want to learn another language. I wish I had. I took a Czech class my last semester of graduate school. So I learned a little bit, but everyone always expected me to speak Czech when I was in Prague. And um, it was I have rather rudimentary Czech knowledge. So that was interesting. But everyone always said my name correctly here in the US. It No one ever really says it right. But there uh, in Prague, people said it very correctly, of course. And so as my, just to talk about my time in Prague, it's a bit of a bittersweet tale, I guess, because I moved to Prague in January 2020. And Everyone might be seeing where this is going. We had a global pandemic, which hit hit the Czech Republic in about March 2020. And so I spent my time fully there under the pandemic. So I did. I did have an enjoyable time in Prague. I, I really enjoyed getting to know the city and the people. However, things were limited uh, because of the pandemic and there were extra stresses getting to know a medical system very quickly, trying to get to know a medical system very quickly in a foreign country. And then just travel was much more limited than I had been anticipating. So I was dealing with a lot more unforeseen difficulties uh, than I had expected moving there. But I did truly enjoy my time there. I really enjoyed the people I met through work and otherwise. So it, it really is a beautiful city. and. It's very true. It's it's hard to walk over the Charles Bridge in tourist season. I do feel privileged, though. A colleague and friend of mine and I 
went on the Charles Bridge at 7 a.m. in the middle of the pandemic, and we got to take photos of it with no one on it, which is rather rare. So yeah, that's a brief overview of my, my time in Prague and my family connections to the Czech Republic. Fantastic. Yes. And I've still got very warm memories of the Czech Republic and Prague. Indeed, it's just so lovely there. Now, just before we switch into science mode and talk about your PhD and your current research in some detail, we've got a very broad audience here on Astrophys, and we know we've got quite a number of early career researchers listening. Could you tell us how you lined up your current position at the GBT, the Green Bank Telescope? Yes, of course. When you go to conferences, so this is some advice to the early career listeners there, to go to conferences and to talk to people in your field and you learn about positions. And so my first postdoc, the one in Prague, I learned about through meeting someone at a conference who then became a good friend and colleague later on. And it was pretty similar with my postdoc here. I took the opportunities that were handed to me. So in graduate school, our collaboration decided to put in a proposal for time on the the GBT. And then we found out that it's useful to send observers to the telescope to learn how to observe. And then you get a boost in your observing priority. Your project gets scheduled more often if you have someone visiting there. So I volunteered to be the first one in our collaboration to go and learn how to use the GBT and the instruments. So I did that. I spent two weeks here in Green Bank, West Virginia, learning all of that. Met a lot of fantastic people that are now my colleagues. And I learned about the postdoc positions during my time in Prague as it was my first postdoc was coming to a close. I kept my eye out for different opportunities. And so the postdoc position here happened to open up around the time that it was time for me to move on to my next position. So I guess in a short answer, I learned about this through taking advantage of opportunities to go various places and uh, to observe and then kept my eye on this until uh, there was an opening. Fantastic. And uh, this is a a lovely sequel. I'd like to ask one more thing before we put our science hats on. We know that many researchers often have great mentors and PhDs have wonderful supervisors. Would you like to tell us about some of the people who've supported your career and your research directions? Oh, yes, of course. Thanks for asking. I have had some fantastic mentors throughout my career so far, and they have been my supervisors and then also just really great support systems of colleagues that are a bit further along in their career that have supported me throughout my time. So my PhD supervisor, Dr. Anthony Gonzalez, has been and continues to be a really fantastic mentor of encouraging me and advising me how to approach various things. And he gave me a lot of great advice during the final years of my PhD. And then my supervisor in Prague, Dr. Yerji Sapovida, was extremely supportive and just generally very supportive in 
the endeavors that I chose to take. But I think that really some of the biggest roles were my friends and colleagues that were, you know, maybe a few years older than I, that continued to check in and just be a part of my academic career and be people that I could talk to for support. And there are so many that I am not able to list them all, but it really is important to have mentors that are direct advisors and supervisors. Those are really good to have, you know, solid people for that, but it's also really helpful and important to have those that you can go talk to like other mentors that aren't your direct supervisors that you can talk to. So those are the, some the people that I've had the pleasure to interact with during my career. Excellent. Okay. Thanks, Emily. Now it's science time. Now, can you, (laughs) can you paint the big picture of your PhD research for us and your dissertation Radio galaxies in massive galaxy clusters at Redshift 1. And what were the big questions you were looking at? Yeah, okay. Great question. These are my favorite things to talk about. So I'm really excited to talk about this. So my general area of research is exactly what my PhD dissertation uh, title is. I like to study how galaxies that have become active interact with their larger environments. So what's really amazing is that gravity can work on a much larger scale than having us you know, simply go around the sun and you know, forming stars and such. It can actually bring together groups of galaxies on a very large scale. So we call these galaxy clusters. And it's so interesting because galaxies evolve differently when they are part of a group than when they're on their own. So if you think about it, you know, your life is very different if you live in a city versus if you live out in the country on your own, you interact with more people in the city and yeah, that can affect your life. And so I was studying these active galaxies, which are galaxies that their black hole has started to uh, basically suck things in and attract them and then spit them back out into space in uh, the form of jets. And I was studying how these active galaxies affect the others around them in a galaxy cluster at a particular time in the universe when galaxy clusters are still forming. So the big question I was looking at is, in this particular time in the universe, do galaxy clusters affect how galaxies evolve and how so and to what degree. So that's what I was looking at with my dissertation work. Fantastic. Must have been so much fun. Yeah. (laughs) Many of our listeners will be aware of a variety of radio instruments, but we haven't talked about the Carl Jansky VLA on this show before. Would you like to tell us a little about the technologies and the methodologies you were using for your PhD research and just how massive are these massive galaxy clusters you were looking at? Yes, of course. I'd love to talk about this. I love radio astronomy. It's uh, my favorite thing to do and love galaxy clusters. So first about VLA, so we call it the VLA or the JVLA. 
So there are different types of radio telescopes and you can have a single antenna or dish, which is what the GBT is, where you just have one dish, that's all it is. And that accomplishes a certain kind of radio astronomy. It tells you about the large scale structure of astronomical objects. And it tells you about how bright these objects are. But if you put a bunch of these individual antennas or dishes in an array, you can get different types of information. So if you have a lot of these antennas all together or dishes, you can actually get higher resolution radio images. And that depends on how many radio telescopes you have in the array and how far apart they are. It's really, truly fascinating what you can do with the VLA. There are two proposal deadlines a year, and they actually move these giant antennas or dishes. They put them on a cart, <laughs> on a, a transport device, and they physically move these antennas. They are in a Y structure, and there's 28 of them. And every few months, they actually put each antenna and move it out. And I believe, I can't remember, I think the largest distance between them is about 23 miles at its most. And then when it's really compact, you know, it's only maybe a half mile or some such thing between all of the different antennas. They're all compact, but in that most extended configuration, they have the two that are farthest apart can be up to 20 miles or something apart. So this is how radio astronomy works because we have the different wavelengths of white. So you have x-rays, which is very small wavelength and very high energy. So you have a fundamentally different type of telescope for that. And then you have optical light, which we see with our eyes. So you have an optical telescope. But then you have radio waves, which have really large wavelengths. And you have to then create a telescope that can detect that. So that's why you have to have these telescopes so far apart or the individual antennas components of the full array have to be further apart because you're dealing with a fundamentally different type of light that has a really large wavelength. So the VLA is pretty cool that way that you can actually move the antennas. And there's uh, another radio interferometer called ALMA in Chile. They do this as well. They move the antennas. And there's one in Hawaii as well called the SMA. Yes, we have one of those arrays here in Australia called ATCA. It's uh, six 22-metre dishes. It can be moved along a, a three-kilometre set of railway tracks. Sorry, Emily, keep going. So these are interferometers when you have a lot of individual radio telescopes that make up one virtual giant telescope. So that's that's a little bit about the VLA. Beautiful. What a lovely instrument or group yeah. of instruments that is. And the clarity of your description of it, I could actually picture it in my head. So that's beautiful. Thank you. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> Now, I've been looking at your recent publications, and we always ask a couple of technical questions for listeners who want to put their propeller hats on uh -huh. uh, when they're listening to an episode. Could you talk us through some details of a particular paper or other part of your research that you're working on now 
that is driving you crazy or astonishingly exciting or both? Uh, oh, yes, of course. It's what I think about every day. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I'll talk about a recent paper. It's not my most recent one. But as I mentioned, I'm studying these active galaxies in galaxy clusters. And I studied about 50 galaxy clusters that had these active galaxies in them. And I studied them with radio waves. So these are radioactive galaxies. So they're radio AGN. And I was studying the properties of the clusters themselves, different you know, physical properties of the cluster and physical properties of active galaxies to see if there are any correlations between the properties of each of these things. And through this process of studying these 50 galaxy clusters, I came across a very interesting cluster. And it was set apart amongst the rest in a couple different ways. It had a lot more just radio emission in that it had more radio galaxies near the cluster center than the other galaxies. And it had very extended radio galaxies. So they had these beautiful jets and it was the one that had the most of these and the morphology. So how the structure of these radio jets were also quite unique to this particular galaxy cluster. So the question was, why is this cluster special? What's going on here? Why does it have more radio galaxies? Why does it have ones that are more extended, et cetera? So we went around looking at this cluster to see what, what gives. And it turned out that this was a merging galaxy cluster. And what that means is that we know that the universe forms by this thing called hierarchical formation, which simply means you have smaller things coming together to make larger things. Yep. So how a galaxy cluster is formed is that you have smaller groups of galaxies coming together to form a large galaxy cluster. And that takes time and you have to have these smaller systems merging together to make a larger system at the end. And so I found evidence that this galaxy cluster I had found that was set apart amongst the rest, that it was a merging system. So now I'm asking, do all merging galaxy clusters have this high radioactivity? Do all merging systems have more active galaxies, more radioactive galaxies uh, and such things? So I have some data from the VLA and then from the SMA. And I have a student that's working with me too, working on this question and comparing galaxy clusters that are merging to those that are not merging to look at their different populations of these active galaxies. And yeah, I guess it really is uh, driving me crazy because I, I want to know, <laughs> is this a ubiquitous trend that you always have more AGN or more you know, active galaxies and extended radio galaxies in merging systems. And that will tell us about how the large scale environment actually affects the individual galaxy evolution. Fantastic. That sounds like a great system and also sounds like there's a, a lot more work and a lot more fun you can have in there. 
Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. Well, the follow-up on that, now you're on site at the GBT, the Green Bank Telescope, the world's largest fully steerable radio telescope. It must be truly awesome just to be there. Yes, it is. It really is. It's a, it is a really incredible sight. And I think even after only being here nine months, I've already, it's already started to wear off a little. And as visitors come, I remember, oh, yes, this is a really, truly amazing place. The structure is just really humbling to be in the presence of it, uh, how big it is. And it reminds me every day of how much has to come together to do science. And it's just so incredible how far along we've come. Yep. But it's a, it's a truly awesome structure. And it's really incredible the staff throughout the years, what they've done to keep it going and to continue to uh, push it forward as well. Yeah, it's a really amazing place. And historically, it's incredible too, because the Green Bank Observatory site was the first site of the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, which is the main hub of radio astronomy in the United States. And, and so that it's just also humbling and amazing to be a part and to live here and be a part of this site when it has had such historical perspective as well. It's been here since the 1950s and the staff and the site has continued to progress and stay relevant and to continue to push radio astronomy. So yes, it, it really is truly awesome just to be here. Yes, and it's got a wonderful history. I'd recommend anyone that's interested go and have a good look at the history of a GBT. It's fascinating, a, a beautiful instrument. So let's talk about your work at the GBT. What do you do on a daily basis, Emily? What does a day in the life of a radio astronomer actually look like? Yeah, that's a great question. I think a lot of us that work at an observatory have a very similar way of doing things and similar duties that we're required to do. So for me, I have, as a postdoc, I have 50% of my time to do research and 50% of my time to do something we call functional duties. So I spend my 50% of my time researching those radio galaxies and galaxy clusters. And then for my functional duties, I spend time organizing colloquia where we bring in speakers to talk to the scientific staff about their work. I also help with observer training workshops. We have workshops twice a year to teach observers how to use the Green Bank Telescope. We also act as something called a project friend. So every proposal that is accepted on the telescope gets a staff member assigned to it. So if the astronomers on the proposal have questions, they know who to contact. I also spend time supporting one of the higher frequency instruments, Mustang 2, on the Green Bank Telescope. We have a lot of different instruments and receivers that are on telescope. So different people are assigned to these different receivers to make sure everything's going okay. And then 
I also spend time just generally producing materials to help observers use the Green Bank Telescope. And other staff also spend time commissioning new instruments and generally supporting observers in different ways. So my daily life looks like either doing research or doing these functional duties. And I spend all of most of my time actually on a computer reducing data and doing research or uh, spending time getting ready for these observer workshops and doing such things like this. And also uh, part of being on staff at the Green Bank Telescope and being part of the scientific staff is that we have these on-call shifts. And uh, what this is, is if something goes wrong with the telescope, they have to have someone to call. So we either try to figure out what's wrong or know who to call next of what's, what's going on. So we're on call for periods of three to five days. And if you were living in a city that's a more normal way of life, as I think the modern world thinks of, you know, you could kind of just wander around and have your cell phone with you. But in Green Bank, we uh, don't have cell phones because there are less transmitting towers allowed here because that interferes with the telescope observations. So we don't have cell service here. So we actually have to sort of stay inside most of those times and let the telescope operator know when we move around so that they have someone to call if something goes uh, goes south. So yeah, that's a broad overview of what I actually do on a daily basis, uh, actually with being a radio astronomer. Fantastic. It sounds like a great mix there, the research work and the functional work. So Good luck with the rest of your AGN, your massive galaxy and your interferometry work. It sounds like you've got a lovely career and a research trajectory mapped out for yourself and some great scientists to work with. And you hinted earlier about when you first landed in Prague at the start of the COVID crisis. How has the current worldwide pandemic impacted on your studies and your research over the last couple of years. Ah, yes. Well, thank you for the well wishes and your kind words. As for the pandemic, yeah, it, it has definitely affected everyone <laughs> in our world in different ways. And for me, it affected me in the fact that I had moved to a new country and then the pandemic hit. So I think it hit me on a more personal level, per se, uh, because the integration into society there and just the transition, I think, was more difficult, much more difficult than it would have been in a COVID-free world. Yep. So I think it, it just added a lot more stress to everything. So I think I just had a much, much higher level of stress. I still have yet to get covid so I just, I just think it was generally a lot of stress, but how it affected my professional career is that I actually was going to have a lot more functional duties as a part of my first postdoc, because I was working with the Alma telescope. 
and the telescope actually shut down for a year during the pandemic. And so I actually had more time to do just research. So I think that I was more productive, actually, research-wise during the pandemic. Well, the pandemic is still going. But during those years, I was in Prague. But well, personally, I was more stressed and didn't get to travel as much to meet colleagues and to do personal travel as I had been expecting moving to Europe. So that's that's how it impacted me both personally and professionally. Yep. Okay. I think no one's come away unscathed in one way or another. Okay. Look, one of the enjoyable things about my job is that I go and have a good look at the broad life of our guests on the show. And I've found some of amazing outreach work that you do. I've gone on to your website and I've found quite a number of YouTube videos and <laughs> you've done other outreach work like co-founding and leading original outreach programs. You've developed large community events at museums and the Kennedy Space Centre and universities. You do school visits and you create those YouTube astro videos just to list a few. Can you tell us a bit about your passion for outreach and what's coming up next for you and why is it so important to you? Yeah, thanks for asking. I, I do. I do love doing outreach, whether it's to the general public or just to this scientific community. But I guess I'll, I'll talk about why it's important to me first. I truly love the science that I do but there's a certain level of enjoyment that you get from uh, just interacting with the general public and sharing that with people. You know, it's great to have these technical conversations with your colleagues, but it just gives me so much energy and excitement to share that with other people and to talk about space and what's out there. And I, I really enjoy talking with people that aren't astronomers about space and what we know about it. And I think it's really important also for general scientific literacy of just sharing, you know, what do we know about the universe that we live in? And I really enjoy being a resource for people to talk about that and to ask questions. I've just generally always enjoy that. Um, and during graduate school, our university and the astronomy program at the University of Florida, there were quite a few of us that really enjoyed that. And there were a lot of opportunities. There were a lot of schools nearby. And then I was fortunate and privileged to come into contact with two other wonderful scientific ladies who also had this passion. And we did this springs and stars events. It was really fantastic. We got some funding and in Florida, there are these natural springs. So we thought we would take astronomy to these parks that had these springs and do science with both of those things. And I, I really enjoyed that. So I've just always enjoyed sharing astronomy with the public. It's just, I get a lot of energy and enjoyment out of it. And as far as what's coming up next, for me in outreach, 
what's really amazing is there's a really large education and public outreach uh, department and effort here at the Green Bank Observatory. So there are so many opportunities, but this school called the Governor's School, and it's, I believe it's rising ninth graders that come out here. I, I think it's about 30 to 50 of them, and they come out and do radio astronomy for two weeks. Uh, I've signed up to be a mentor, a scientific mentor for these uh, groups that come in and they go We have a teaching telescope, a teaching radio telescope, a little 40 foot, and they go and take observations and they learn how to do radio astronomy. So I'm going to serve uh, as an advisor for some of those groups. And I've been giving some public outreach talks, just giving talks about my work at a very basic level to astronomy clubs, amateur astronomy clubs in the US virtually. So I've given a few of those recently. And I'm looking forward to continuing to be involved with the education and public outreach uh, opportunities here at the observatory. Fantastic. Uh, That Stars and Springs work sounds wonderful. And all of that up and coming work as well. That moment when you see the penny drop in the audience, when you see them experience that aha moment when they understand something. Like for me, understanding your description of the VLA, was there was so much clarity in it. Um, I had one of those aha moments back then, and that's one of the great joys of outreach. Now, I notice you've been involved in science policy development as well, and we know that good policy leads to good practice. Would you like to tell us about the science policy work you're doing with the National Academy of Sciences engineering and medicine. Yes, I'd love to talk about that. So there was a time in uh, graduate school when I wasn't sure if I wanted to continue in astronomy specifically. And uh, there was this opportunity to do a fellowship called the Mirzayan Science and Technology Policy Fellowship at the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine. And I decided to do that. But looking back even further, it's it's really important to interface with those that actually fund science. And in the United States, it's the United States Senate and uh, House of Representatives that actually fund the National Science Foundation, which is one of the ways that science gets funded in the United States. And it's very important to have your voice be heard in the United States. And one way that you do that is you talk to your state representative. And, you know, it just kind of is the way it is that if the loudest voices get heard and those that say a lot also get heard and get representation. So the American Astronomical Society every year has congressional visits days where they have astronomers and it's usually anywhere from a graduate student to a senior faculty member. They have about, I don't know, maybe 20 from different states come to the headquarters in Washington, D.C. and go and learn how the government, how the U.S. government funds science. And then we go and actually talk to the staff of the representatives in the states and just say, hey, here are the priorities of astronomers. So I 
was given the opportunity to participate in this in the middle of grad school sometime and really enjoyed that. So that's the general term of science policy is just this general idea of scientists interfacing with policy that's made by the government. So I did this congressional visit stays. And then later I thought, well, I'm not sure if I want to do astronomy full time. So let me try this uh, science policy fellowship at the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine. I took three months off of grad school in my fourth year to go to Washington, D.C. and live and work there. And what's really amazing is that the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine, they have about 50 boards of scientists and it's biology, chemistry, astronomy, technology, and they assemble boards of professional scientists to advise the government usually on how to spend money according to their particular field. And I got to be involved with a project in astronomy called the Decadal Survey. And astronomy was the first one to do this, where every 10 years we get all of the U.S. scientists and astronomers in general, and also those that are international also have input as well. And we decide what are the priorities for astronomy in the next 10 years. Now, of course, this is getting more difficult as projects and technology advance, but it is a tangible way to advise the government on how to spend money in astronomy. So I got the opportunity to design an event to get early career astronomers involved in this because historically, the decadal survey has been something for the very tenured and senior members in the field to guide the field. And the early career voice needed to be heard. And so I was given the opportunity to create an event and to help early career astronomers get involved with this decadal survey. So that's a brief overview of science policy and the US government funding uh, science in general. Fantastic. And getting those early career astronomers involved is so important. Thank you very much. Okay, so now the mic is all yours, Emily, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges that we face in science, in equity, in representations of diversity, or in science denialism, one thing that I work on a lot, or science mm. career paths, or your own passion for research, or our human quest for new knowledge. The microphone's all yours. All right. So my uh, chosen topic, uh, I believe, is going to be just women in astronomy. And it's something that is near and dear to my heart that we're doing a lot better than we used to be with female representation in astronomy. But it's taking a long time to plug up this so-called leaky pipeline where we have women in early career parts of astronomy in graduate school and postdocs, but it continues to drop off as you get more senior in the field. And it, it just, it takes mentorship and people being aware of the issue that women are not well represented in more senior positions in astronomy. And I'm trying to mentor young women to help them 
move through the career path. We do, we need more women in this field uh, uh, that continue throughout the field. So I think that's one of the challenges we face is just the diversity and equity as, as you continue along in the career um, of astronomy. So I, yeah, I don't have any great answers of how to fix it, but we need to start at least by being aware that's an issue. And I know a lot of places and institutions talk about, well, how do we address it? Because, you know, it, can you simply just say, we're looking for a, a female faculty member? And then different people take issue with different parts of, of that premise, and it can get quite, quite sticky at times, but we need to do something. We need to do something. So that is a challenge I believe is faced with us is for in astronomy is that we have a lack of representation of women in the higher ranks of the profession and yeah, the stigmatisms that go along with that. And there is still a lot of uh, discrimination uh, at times. I personally have not experienced it, but yeah, there's the listeners have probably heard of some of the, the cases of male supervisors not treating female graduate students and, and such very well that there are these, you know, yeah, they can be lawsuits or et cetera against these, these folks. So that's, that's the challenge that I think that we are facing these days. Yeah, exactly. And it's at every career stage, we need to have good representation of the whole of our communities and everyone doing a little bit here on Astrophys. We, we're very proud that we've got a diversity policy and 50% of our interviews are with women astrophysicists and everyone doing a little bit. It's a cultural change. There's a lot of work still to be done. Now, what else should we look out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on, Emily? Yeah, there, there are a lot of really exciting things for astronomy coming up. And uh, I think one that many of the listeners will have heard of is, is the JWST. There's going to be some really great science coming out of that. I'm really excited to see the images and the science that we get to do and the early universe that we're going to get to uncover with JWST. And then another telescope is the Next Generation VLA. This is really exciting too. It's, it's very close to being a reality. They're still going through proposals and such, but it, it really does seem like this will become a reality. So that's going to extend the VLA by an order of magnitude. I can't remember how many antennas, but it's going to be you know an order of magnitude, more antennas um, spread across the US to make a larger radio telescope. So that's that's really exciting. And then there's a uh, an X-ray mission called Euclid that I'm really excited about too. That's gonna be great for galaxy clusters. That's much further down the line, but these uh, next generation telescopes are going to tell us a lot. And we, we thank all of the countries and uh, people that have contributed to these really, really amazing next generation telescopes. Yes, indeed. 
these new space telescopes, James Webb, the SKA, hopefully the SKA will yes, SKA. with the new VLA. That'd be great if they could join forces. And oh, yeah. the nice thing about all of those great instruments coming online, not only do they give us answers to puzzling questions, they ask us, they enable us to ask new questions. It's just fantastic. Okay. Yes. Well, Thank you so much, Dr. Emily Moravik. On behalf of all our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you. Thank you for the clarity in your descriptions of the work of astrophysicists and yours in particular. I can recommend to our listeners, go and look at Emily's website. It's at emilymoravik.com. And you can also find Dr. Emily Moravik on LinkedIn. And good luck with your next adventures. Thank you so much. I'm over in Chile, minus four degrees Australia at the moment. And I hope you have, you've probably got autumn approaching over there. I hope you have a lovely autumn and some wonderful time up there at the Green Bank Telescope. Thank you so much, Brendan. It's been a real honor and pleasure to be with you on this podcast. Thanks for a fantastic interview and, and good luck to all the listeners. Just keep on keeping on. Okay, bye-bye. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored and we're very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from Rami Mandal at spaceaustralia.com and for observers and astrophotographers always check out Dr Ian Musgrave's astroblogger website. We'll see you in two weeks when we'll bring you Ian's Sky Guide. Radio Wave.